0: King of England, and you, Duke of Bedford, you call yourself Regent of the Kingdom of France, you, William de la Pole, Sir John Talbot, and you, Sir Thomas of Scales, who call yourself Lieutenant of the aforesaid Duke of Bedford, render your account to the King of Heaven. Surrender to the maid who is sent here from God, the King of Heaven, the keys to all of the good cities that you have taken and violated in France. She has come here from God to proclaim the blood royal. She is entirely ready to make peace if you are willing to settle accounts with her, provided that you give up France and pay for having occupied her. And those among you, archers, companion-at-arms, gentlemen, and others who are before the city of Orléans, go back to your own countries for God's sake. And if you do not do so, wait for the word of the maid, who will come to visit you briefly to your great damage. If you do not do so, I am commander of the armies, and in whatever place I shall meet your French allies, I shall make them leave it, whether they wish to or not, and if they will not obey, I shall have them all killed. I am sent from God, the King of heaven, to chase you out of all of France, body for body, every last one of you, and if they wish to obey, I shall have mercy on them, and have no other opinion, for you shall never hold the kingdom of France from God, The king of heaven, son of St. Mary, but King Charles, true heir, will hold it for God, the king of heaven, wishes it so and has revealed this through the maid, and he will enter Paris with a goodly company, and in exchange of blows we shall see who has better right from the king of heaven. You, Duke of Bedford, the maid praise you and requests that you cause no more destruction. If you will settle your account, you can come to join her company, in which the French will achieve the finest feat ever accomplished in Christendom, and give answer if you wish to make peace in the city of Orléans, and if indeed you do not do so, be mindful, soon of your great damages. Tuesday of Holy Week, March 22, 1429. Signed, Joan of Arc. So if you wish to hear more about this fantastic Catholic saint and woman, keep listening to find out more. Hey everyone, welcome back to Smoking with the Saints podcast. I'm Michael Hanlin, your host, and this week... We are talking about Joan of Arc, St. Joan of Arc. And the book that we will be discussing and using as our main source to talk about the life and actions of St. Joan of Arc is For God and Country, The Heroic Life and Martyrdom of St. Joan of Arc by Father Michael Serone And this is an excellent book. This is uh, put up by Sophia Institute Press. So I highly, highly recommend that you get this book because even though there will be a lot of great content and scenes from the life of Saint Joan of Arc that's portrayed on this podcast there is so much more there is a plethora of other content other quotes other other actions that are covered in the book so and there's also some great reflections given by the author on Saint Joan of Arc and other other philosophical themes of being a soldier, being a patriot. So, highly recommend this. And I am very excited to go through this book because it combines my love of history and then also the love of the Catholic Church and talking about Catholic saints. So, this is perfect. Now, I wanted to start off by giving a overview of the world that St. Joan of Arc is living in. What is happening? Who are the major players? What is the conflict that is happening? Because it is a it is a time of war. It is not a great time to be alive, so to speak. So just jumping into the book, we, we start off in 1137 with Eleanor of Aquitaine kind of laying the ground for the world that St. Joan of Arc will grow up in. So Eleanor of Aquitaine became Queen of France. She was married to King Louis VII in 1137. And that was until 1152 when it was dissolved because there was no male heir. And I'm fast-forwarding through all these events because there's a lot to cover. But uh, after that time, she remarried to Henry II, the King of England in 1154. And the key thing is that she remained in control of the land holdings in the southwest of France, which is where she was from. And she died in 1189, so she had quite a long life. And uh, a quote from the book on this point talks about how the stage was being set in late 12th century England for the commencement in early 14th century France. Of a hundred years of war between the two nations, all right. So now we're fast forwarding to King Saint Louis the Ninth, and he ruled from twelve twenty six to twelve seventy. And the book notes that Louis was the model Christian king who epitomized the ideals of piety, chivalry, charity, and humility. He was also a model husband and father, always faithful in devotion to his wife and patient in the instruction of his kingdom, and his children. So, you know, he was he was the ideal king, the ideal medieval Catholic king when you think of of that that form. And uh, some of the the notable things he did that were great were he established the University of Paris, so, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas was very happy about that, which it was he was a product of that university. And also St. Albert the Great was another product of the University of Paris, and uh there was Gothic art and architecture that flourished during this time. So you had Notre Dame, you had Saint Chapelle, and he died while on the Eighth Crusade from a plague in Carthage in twelve seventy. So he was getting after it. He wasn't he wasn't just sticking around France, but he was also going on crusades. So very active guy. And then moving forward to King Philip the Fourth, who inherited the throne in twelve eighty five during this reign there was the avignon papacy that started and also at the same time the war started between england and france so this is some of the 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 history and foundation at this time now we're gonna skip forward to further in the war after 75 years of war what's what's the state of france what's the state of england and the book notes that The Kingdom of France was in a truly pathetic state at this time. The French had suffered a humiliating defeat at Agincourt in 1415 by a much smaller English army commanded by their King Henry V. Francis King Charles VI, suffering from psychosis and dementia with only brief periods of lucidity, agreed to the Treaty of Troyes in 1420. His Queen, Isabeau of Bavaria, collaborated in that treaty, giving their daughter in marriage to the ambitious King Henry V of England, so that a son of theirs would become king of both England and France at the death of Charles VI. The same treaty thus disinherited Charles and Isabeau's only surviving adult son, the Dauphine, crown prince, Charles VII, from rightfully assuming his father's throne. And so this started this started a, essentially a, a blood feud between Charles VII and Duke Philip of Burgundy and the area of Burgundy that's that's in the northern part of France I guess you could consider that Belgium now but at the time it was it was a a a kingdom that was that was controlled by the Duke of Burgundy. And so the duke at the time was Philip. So he had this blood feud going on. And in all of this turmoil, all this war, all of this political backstabbing and diplomacy, you have young Joan of Arc who enters the stage. So let's talk about Joan of Arc, where she's from, where was she born. So Joan of Arc was born in the town of Domremy. On the east central edge of France, and that's about 200 miles east of Paris. And also, please forgive me for my poor pronunciation of any of the French names. I'm going to try my best, but I uh, I took Spanish in high school. I did not take French, even though my family has some French Canadian ancestry. So uh, I I do apologize if that happens. But hey, you know what? We're just we're just Saying saying it like it is, so let's continue on. So she was born in the town of Domremy, and going to the book quote. Next to the village church of Domremy was the small humble house of Jacques d'Arc the Arc, and his wife Isabel Romy. They were a simple, pious, hard-working, and highly respected couple, who were active in their church and in leadership of their community. Now, on January sixth, fourteen twelve. The great feast day of the epiphany of the Lord, their fifth child was born, a daughter of whom they named Jehan, or the medieval French spelling of Joan. And legend has it that marvelous heavenly lights, which brought wonder and joy to Domremy that night, foretold the arrival of a special child, much as the mysterious star of David had lighted the way of the three wise men to the Christ child in the little town of Bethlehem. So already we're we're at a great start. You have lights in the sky foretelling of the birth of Joan. So continuing on, we have a, a quote here that the uh, Joan of Arc quote, I learned my faith and was correctly taught to do so as a good child should. From my mother I learned the paternoster, the aver, and the creed. Sorry, it's the Ave. And I had my teachings in the faith from her and from no one else. And continuing on, there is a quote talking about Joan growing up and how she had the nickname of Jeannette. And uh, just describing how Joan was taught about the faith by her parents and she was taught to pray, to offer sacrifice, to do penance. And going back to the book, a quote on that mentions, "...without affectation or self-consciousness, Jeanette lived as easily in the supernatural realm of the divine by prayer as in the natural course of events in ordinary human relationships and activities." And another quote talking about her upbringing is from her mother and this was given at the towards the end of her life after her, after Joan of Arc had been martyred and there was a trial to uh, to go over the the false trial the the bad trial of Joan of Arc so her mother says quote i had a daughter born in holy wedlock she grew up amid the fields and pastures I had her baptized and confirmed and brought her up in the fear of God. I taught her respect for the traditions of the church, and I succeeded so well that she spent much of her time in church, and after going to confession, she received the Eucharist frequently. Because the people suffered so much, she had a great compassion for them in her heart, and despite her youth, she would fast and pray for them with great devotion and fervor. She never thought, spoke, or did anything against the faith. Thus did the elderly, frail Isabel Romy later testify about her daughter, Joan. Also continuing on, Joan made a private vow of virginity at age 13 after she had heard her voices. St. Michael the Archangel, prince of the heavenly host of angels, was the first one she heard and saw then two late 3rd century virgin martyrs, St. Catherine of Alexandria from Egypt and St. Margaret of Antioch from Asia Minor. They also appeared and spoke to Joan. All three heavenly visitors called her Joan Pousselle, Joan the Virgin or Maiden, and Phile de Dieu," the Daughter of God. And quote by Joan says, When I was 13, I had a voice from God to help me govern myself. Joan then made a private vow of virginity, For as long as it pleases God, because in the depths of her being, she was transformed by the encounter with the archangel, she suddenly acquired a whole new purpose in life, through an exclusive commitment to God, I must keep the vow and promise I have made to our Lord to keep well my virginity of body, And soul and this was characterized later on in a event that happened in 1428 there was a raid on her town and they had gone to a local stronghold for protection and safety and while there her father was was looking to find a suitable husband for her to marry her off so that she would be protected and not fall prey to any mercenaries or marauders that would come and 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 rape her. So,, uh, but at this time, she refused the marriage contract by her father, fearing that she would be disobeying God's command and will for her life. So thereafter, quote, to fulfill her vocation and mission in life, she would, from that point on, Identify herself as Jeanne La Poucelette, Jeanne the Maid. And also, Jeanne is uh, is is the French word for Joan, so I might use that uh, occasionally. I might just switch between them, but it's Joan of Arc or Jeanne La Poucelette. So there we go. And uh, moving on to a section that the the author gives his reflections on. Father Michael says that thus Joan, a lay person consecrated in virginity, a committed mystic and confirmed soldier of Christ, kept secret from her parents her intention to follow the heavenly voices of God's emissaries, the Archangel Michael and the Virgin Martyrs Catherine of Alexandria and Margaret of Antioch. The light from above would guide her to understand her mission and strengthen her resolve to accomplish it despite the trials and tribulations she would face. And he puts in a quote from the Psalm 45. Hear, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your lord, bow to him. And so begins the adventure of Joan of Arc. Now, from here she goes on to Vaucouleurs which was a fort town about 20 kilometers north of Don Remy. And she met Baron Robert de Baudrecourt, and there she gave him a warning that Orléans was under siege by the English and that she needed to lead the Delphine's army to repulse the enemy. Now, at this point, the Baron hearing this was not convinced at all. He mocked her and sent her away as just some crazy young French girl. But then he got word weeks later that Orléans was indeed under siege. So this caught his attention, and what he did after this is he granted her request, and he entrusted his officer, Jean de Metz, and a bodyguard to escort her to the Dauphine at Ginon in the southwest of France. And John gives a testimony of his thoughts on Joan after having met her in quote he says the said maid always told them not to be afraid because she had done this by commandment and he believed many things that the maid said and he was inflamed by what she said and as he believed by a divine love for her a divine love for her god the holy spirit was inspiring pure love for the beautiful holy maid in the hearts of those who encountered her now describing the trek, quote, the trek took 11 days through hostile territory in cold weather and a rugged countryside. Despite her small escort, Joan had such trust in God's protection that she stopped as often as possible to attend mass and visit important shrines. And I love that note, because for all of us, including myself, who are trying to get to Daily Mass more, but we all have our our own little excuses, this is just a slap in the face of, okay, buddy, if Joan of Arc can travel through dangerous, hostile territory where she could have been attacked, murdered, raped, she still made time to go to Mass and visit shrines, so... In our modern day, where we have things so easily, it's it's really not that hard to uh, to to try to get to daily mass. So let this be an inspiration for us all. But continuing on, they arrived at Chinon and they waited a couple days until they were granted an audience by Charles. Now there was a bit of a trick played to see if Joan of Arc was the the real deal by Charles. So quote. Charles was not dressed in his princely attire, having agreed to a charade to test the supposed prophetess, Joan La Pucelle. although he had put a regal robe on one of his courtiers and then stood in more modest clothing amid the crowd of onlookers. Joan followed her angel's lead directly to him, despite never having met Charles or seen any image of him. She knelt down, embraced his feet, and said, Gentle Dauphine, the King of Heaven has sent me to you for an army to defeat the siege of Orléans and lead you to be anointed and crowned as the rightful heir to the Kingdom of France, which belongs to the King of Heaven. And continuing on, needless to say, the Dauphin and his entourage were greatly surprised by this marvelous encounter. Joan asked to speak with Charles privately, and after their meeting, during which she revealed a secret vow he had made only to God, Charles returned to his courtiers radiant with joy. Alain Chartier, then the Dauphine's secretary, wrote that Charles was so joyful at what she said that it was as if the Holy Ghost had visited him. Joan spent the next three days in the Chinon castle, lodged next to the chapel of Saint Martin, the Roman soldier and convert to Christianity who became Bishop of Tours. At Chenon she also met a cousin of the Dauphine, Duke Jean de Alencon, who became one of her most trusted friends. Now, during this time, while she was staying there, she was submitted to a bunch of physical and theological examinations to further f- prove her virtues and her faith and other motives by the French there. And she passed all of them with flying colors And the book describes how, after their very thorough scrutiny of the teenage girl, the church tribunal at Poitiers sent a formal letter in March 1429 to the Dauphine Charles, unanimously testifying to Joan's good character and her authentic mission from God to gather an army for the liberation of France. The clergyman reached an astounding conclusion and gave a most compelling endorsement of Joan for her religious and patriotic mission. And now, pausing to reflect on what had happened so far, there's a quote about her piety and her deep religious fervor for the faith and especially for the Eucharist. So, John de goes on to say that, quote, I saw her receive the body of Christ. When she saw the host, she shed many tears. She received the Holy Eucharist twice a week and she went to confession often. And I find that beautiful that special devotion to the body of Christ, to our Lord in the Holy Eucharist, and having that that fervor and faith to be overcome with such joy and emotion at receiving the body of Christ is a a blessing, a beautiful devotion to have. Uh, And there's an interesting note about patriotism, loyalty, sacrifice. So the author notes that loyalty and sacrifice are hallmarks of true patriotism. A religious patriot is a person who loves God and country, upholding the ideals of life, liberty, and justice for all, even to the ultimate sacrifice. And also, to the distinguished character of patriot, it should be our highest glory to add the more distinguished character of Christian. Where is the security for property, for reputation, for life, if the sense of religious obligation deserts the oaths? "...of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens." And actually, that was a quote from President George Washington's farewell address, And I'm also thinking of a quote from John Adams that said that the Constitution is a document that was made for a moral and religious people. So I think this ties heavily the idea of patriotism, the example of Joan of Arc fighting for her country, and us in the United States and the founders of this country believing in the Christian faith being the underlying fundamental important aspect that helps to operate our country in a harmonious way and to promote the the good of this country so let that be inspirational for all of us now back to joan of arc leading the army of france so back to the book it says quote after the clergy at poitiers had examined her and strongly endorsed her mission from god the Dauphine Charles entrusted a modest-sized armed force of soldiers to Joan's leadership, along with a small retinue of men as her personal staff, and ordered a suit of white armor, a good horse, and other provisions for her. Her staff included the knights John de Metz, Bertrand de Poligny, her squire John de Alun, her page Louis de Contes, and her chaplain Father John Pasquerel. Now as part of this force there were several other aristocratic generals and one of them was the famous lahir so lahir was an experienced general he was brave he was bold and he had recently had a victory over the english in 1427. now As she was leading this small force, she was forming them up and preparing them for battle, making them into a winning force. She instituted a lot of reforms. So, for example, the maid did not tolerate any female camp followers carousing with her men or any cursing and blaspheming against the holy name of Jesus, including by the course Lahir, or drunkenness and disorderly conduct by her troops. In Chanon, as Joan was going into the royal lodgings that day, a man sitting on his horse near the entrance said, Is that not the maid there, swearing to God that if he had her for a night, she would be no maiden next morning. Then Joan said to the man, Oh, in God's name do you take name his name in vain when you are so near death? And an hour later that man fell into the river and was drowned. And I tell you this as I heard it from Joan and from several others who said they had been present her chaplain reported. So her insistence on the soldiers' frequent confession of sins, daily recitation of prayers, and Sunday and Holy Day attendance at Mass led them to a noticeable reformation of their lives and a renewed commitment to her holy cause, She instilled in them a new spirit of zeal to rally around God's chosen king in waging a just war to liberate the French people from English occupation and to restore peace with honor in a reconciled, reunited nation. Also, her great standard, the flag that she would carry as she rode into battle, was painted uh, based on the instructions from her heavenly voices. And on this banner, there was Fleur lis, which is a symbol of the French monarchy, and it had a background of white, and in the center was Jesus portrayed as the king of heaven with angels surrounding him. And I think the quote from the book shows that Joan took sin seriously, exemplified by her requirement for her soldiers to go to confession before they were allowed to engage in any sort of Evening or morning hymns with the chaplain. So she took that role seriously in promoting virtue and purity in her soldiers and making them into a focused, disciplined force. Now, back to the book, next thing. Marching from Chinon toward Orleans, she received instructions from her voices to secure a hidden sword at the church of St. Catherine de Ferbois. She sent her page to tell the monks that the sword was buried beneath a side altar. To their amazement, they dug it up and easily removed the surface rust of several centuries. It had been the weapon of Charles Martel, grandfather of Charlemagne, the first holy Roman emperor. But Joan loved her standard 40 times better than my sword, she later declared. That's pretty sweet. You just (laughs) fine get told there's a sword, right? It's kind of like from uh, the Legends of Zelda video game, the original, like, don't go alone. Go with the sword from Charles Martel. Here, take it. Anyways, so the soldiers in the French army she was commanded were impacted by her, and through her holiness, her faith, her integrity she did inspire them that God was on their side and that they would be victorious. And there's a good quote from one of her squires, Gobert Tybalt, who said that, In the field she was always with the soldiers, and often when they spoke about the sins of the flesh and used words that might have aroused carnal thoughts, when they saw her and approached her, they could not speak like this anymore, for suddenly their sexual feelings left them. Now, moving on to the Battle of Orleans. So, the author notes that Orleans was an important city on the Loire River and a heavily fortified stronghold of French Armagnac loyalists. The English objective in besieging the city was to neutralize it and seize control of the entire Loire Valley, which was under the military frontier between the opposing forces in France. Under English dominance, this strategically important valley would secure the lines of communication with occupied Paris, deprive French forces of a key source of income, break the French city as the key symbol of resistance to the English, and jeopardize the Dauphin and his kingdom farther south in the region of Bourges. Without capturing Orléans, the English forces would be vulnerable to an attack from the rear and the severing of their supply lines to Paris. If they were so foolhardy as to venture south through the vast forests of Solon with French partisan ambushers along the way to Chenon. So, on their way to Orleans, there were several villagers that joined the army and they were inspired by her. And ahead of her troop, she sent a letter to the English commander, uh, giving him a chance to surrender and end the conflict in peace which was what we read at the beginning of this podcast and it's a great letter just letting him know that she's on a mission from God like the Blues Brothers were on a mission from God and it's time for you to settle your account time for you to surrender sir because I am under the protection of God so I fear you not Uh, But, sadly, and not surprisingly, the English did not surrender. They did not give up the Orléans, and they decided to fight it out. So, at this time, for strategizing how they would take Orléans, it was not a simple castle to take, because Orléans is positioned right on the River Loire. So, imagine you're looking at a square map of the city, and you have in the center of the map, you have the River Loire that flows through from right to left. And then you have the main city of Orléans, which is on the northern bank of the river. And it's not it's not just a big river that flows through, but there are these little islands, these little uh, sandbars and, and inlets that there's two... There's one big one, and then there's two smaller ones. And there are bridges that connect the southern bank, or kind of the suburbs, to the northern bank where you have the main city. And so the the, the English had occupied a couple of bastilles, or little stone fortifications and castles that dotted roughly around the uh, city of Orléans on the northern side, and then you had some on the southern side. So the main city of Orléans was still in French control, but the, the outer castles have been captured by the English. And there was one notable one called Toriel, and that was right on the, right on the southern bank, and it was a, a, a way station or a way fort, in between the northern bank and this little tiny island in the middle of the Loire, and that was owned by the English. So it was a pretty c- tough nut to crack. And the strategy that Joan had was, it flew in the face of the, of the French generals. It was, it was unconventional. So, for example, she had supplies loaded on barges to cross the, liver, the River Loire when there were strong headwinds. And the French generals were predicting disaster. They were warning her against this. But miraculously, the wind changed to the tailwind and allowed the barges to get across. Now, uh, fast-forwarding, on April 29th at 8 p.m., Joan entered Orléans with a relief convoy. So they broke through the English lines. They got inside the city. Everyone was cheering. They're like, yes, the maid is here. Huzzah! And after that, Fighting began on May 4th when the French attack uh, took place against the fortress of Saint-Lou, uh, which they took. And then on May 6th there was an attack on the Augustines fortress, and the first assault failed. And the English counterattacked, uh, and that that Augustine Bastille that's on the southern bank that's the one of the first castles on the southern bank of the Loire River and then uh, the the second attack happened and Joan and Lahir rallied the troops there they reversed the tide they assaulted the fort and they were able to take it but through the process Joan was injured in the foot so she had to uh, be off on the side but on May 7th that was the most decisive day for Orléans so going back to the book Joan arose early and prepared for battle, as she had every other day during her sojourn at Orléans. She confessed to Jean Pasquerel and heard Mass. She sent for a table and asked the priest to adorn it for the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And the priest offered two Masses that morning in the field, which she and the entire army attended with great devotion. She then exhorted her troops for the attack. Early that morning... The French troops brought out their ladders to climb the Toriel Fort. Joan led the charge with banner unfurled to inspire her men. Throughout the day, they scrambled down into the trenches around the barbican, climbed along the walls. They fell, pulled, and hit. Axes, spears, gisarmes, and lead mallets cracked the kettle helmets, ripped open armor, tore the coats of mail, and smashed the bassinets. From the right bank, the people of Orléans constructed a pontoon bridge over the main bridge's broken arches and attacked the English from behind. Yet, as she had prophesied days before, Joan was struck by an arrow just above her left breast and fell backward in excruciating pain. She was rushed to the rear, and when word spread of her serious wound, her soldiers panicked and retreated from the Toriel. The French war chiefs and the bastard Lahir, hurried to her side, and decided to end the attack until the following day. But after only a brief period, Joan helped to remove the arrow from her chest and cried out, Return under God's will and attack again, because the English have undoubtedly little force to defend themselves. We can capture them at Toriel and take control of their barbicans. So, after Joan's exhortation, the French rallied, and they finally broke through the English line, and they took the forts. On Sunday, May 8th, 1429, the English abandoned the siege and they retreated. And there was celebrations. Charles the de Dauphin unfortunately, did not mention Joan in a letter to his subjects, very strangely. Also interesting note uh, to the book, By the evening of May 7th, the French completely controlled the Toriel. Rather than take pleasure with her soldiers in the utter destruction of the Englishmen in the Toriel, Joan wept for the poor souls of the English who had died that day. So, the defeat of the English siege of Orléans, attained through divine assistance, had been the maid's first objective. The second necessary objective was the city of Rheims for the anointing and coronation of Charles VII at the cathedral, the traditional site for the crowning of the legitimate kings of France. The first obstacle that Joan faced, however, was not so much the long-distance march there through territory mostly occupied by Burgundian partisans of the English, as it was hesitancy by Charles and the French captains of war. One or two captains wanted to proceed immediately into Normandy to recover French control of that province from the English. Yet the number of battle-ready French troops had been greatly depleted to about 2,000 men according to some modern estimates, after their attacks on English fortifications around Orléans. Thus, Joan and the other battle leaders traveled to Loches castle, where Charles had relocated to ask for more troops in order to recapture the towns around Orléans and the Loire River Valley. Once the Loire Valley was secured, the main French army could march on to Rheims, where Joan insisted Charles must first received the divine anointing from Christ bishop before he could effectively reunite his people. Now, over the next two months, Joan and her force were marching through the Loire River Valley. They were liberating towns that were held by the English. And there was a notable victory at Jargeau, where she prophetically saved one of her command. Quote, in the book, Joan warned John de Alencon To move away from a location near her, so as to avoid an incoming round soon to be fired from an English cannon, I fell back, and a little later on that very spot where I had been standing, someone else was killed. That made me very afraid, and I wondered greatly at Joan's sayings after all these events. De Alencon later testified. All the while, Joan and her troops' victories at Orleans and Jargeau continued to inspire the enlistment of new recruits, both noblemen and commoners. And also, there's a a neat story where at Bogancy, Jones Force, they tricked an English-held town into thinking that there was no English relief coming and that they should surrender. But actually, there was one really close by and on the way, but they put on a good show and surrounded the town and made it look as if there was no one else coming, and the town surrendered. So props to Joan right there. Also, there is a, a great story, one of her uh, further exploits, at the Battle of Pate. So there was an English ambush that was being set up against the French that was miraculously foiled. So the story goes the the excited french cavalrymen galloping with good spurs to their horses in hot pursuit of the english had lost the element of surprise but not seeing the nearby hidden archers on the main body further back they headed into the planned english ambush amazingly though they saw a stag run out of the woods which made its way toward Pate and crash into the formation of the english who made a very large cry not knowing that their enemy was so near them. Hearing this cry, the French front riders were certain that they were English, so the French sent some of their companions to notify their companions. The English archers then fled into the woods and ran directly into Fastol's hidden reinforcements, not yet ordered for battle. The captain of the English vanguard, thinking that all was lost and that the archers were in flight, took out his white standard and fled with his men, abandoning the hedges. The English were in total disarray when the main body of the French army arrived on the battlefield. A veritable slaughter ensued. 2,200 English soldiers lost their lives while only three Frenchmen died. Fastolf, who was an English commander, managed to escape with some of his men, but Talbot, Scales, and many other English captains were captured. And there's a poignant scene uh, going on to say, Viewing the carnage, Joan wept profusely for the victims, mostly fallen Englishmen. Her extraordinary compassion for the wounded and dying impelled her to comfort and console them. Louis de Contes testified that when she encountered an English prisoner being hit on the head by a Frenchman and left for dead, she immediately dismounted and, quote, holding his head and comforting him as much as she could and ensuring that the Englishmen had confessed. And that right there, that scene, when I think about it, just gives me chills. And there's a sculpture of this scene where it has Joan of Arc in her battle plate sitting on the ground, and she's cradling the head of this wounded Englishman in her lap and also weeping. And that, I think, shows how Joan was not bloodthirsty and out to just kill all englishmen but that she was on a divine mission to free the french nation from the english and to restore the rightful rule but she didn't want slaughter if it wasn't necessary and so and and also you know these guys they're christians too they're they're all they're all sons of god and so having them have to be killed is not pleasant it's not something that wants that that is intended so I uh, I can see that this impacted her but anyways moving on so after the battle at Pate, word rapidly spread throughout the countryside that the French army had been reborn and national pride restored under the spiritual, moral and military leadership of La Pousselle now. In a, another town that was held by the English, Tournai, uh, she wrote a letter to that which asked for their surrender. And it goes like this. Gracious, loyal Frenchman of the city of Tournai, the maid sends you the news that from here in eight days, whether by assault or otherwise, she has chased the English out of every place they held on the River Loire. Many of them are dead or taken prisoners, and they are discomfited in battle. Hold yourselves fast, loyal Frenchmen. I pray and I pray and demand that you be ready to come to the anointing of the gracious King Charles at Reims, where we shall soon be. Come before us when you hear we are approaching. I commend you to God. May God keep watch over you and give you grace to be able to sustain the good cause of the kingdom of France. So, this is an example of after the victory of Orléans and Pate, word was spreading of her victories, and so the towns that were still in English occupation were receiving this news and were advised to throw off the yoke and expel the English invaders. So, word is traveling, and on their way to Rems, the last major town was Troyes, which is where the famous treaty, which gave up large tracts of land and control of France to the English king, was signed. So Troyes was surrendered after seeing the resistance uh, being futile. Resistance is futile. (laughs) And uh, there were no English reinforcements coming. That's, uh, that's, uh, That's a Deep reference to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy mid-2000s film. Check it out. It's good. Uh, anyways, back to it. So on July 16th, 1429, finally, Charles VII was coronated as the king of France in Rems, in the cathedral. And there's a, a great passage that describes that experience. And it goes, quote, The king prostrated himself on the steps of the altar. While the litanies of the saints were chanted, the archbishop, who had prostrated himself at the king's side, marked the king with the holy oil on the head, chest, shoulders, elbows, and wrists. The king dressed at that point only in his shoes and in a loose shirt, put on a tunic and a coat of silk. Once anointed afresh on his hands, he pulled on gloves. The ring that was a symbol of the union between the king and his people was slipped on his finger the crown was taken from the altar and placed on the new king's head. But not before ten of the twelve peers of France who were actually present, five laymen and five ecclesiastics, had held it above his head as he was led from the altar up to the dais on which, he w- on which was placed the throne. It was then that, as depicted on the seals of the time, the new king appeared in royal majesty and after this Joan herself went to kneel before the king and embracing the new king's legs she wept evoking great pity in all who beheld her and said gentle king from this moment the pleasure of God is executed he wished me to raise the siege of Orléans and bring you to the city of Rheims to receive your anointing which shows that you are the true king and the one to whom the kingdom should belong. So let's pause and take take a take a moment to think about the amazing things that have just happened you know, over the course of these months. So you have this peasant girl from nowhere in France who receives these apparitions and this mission from God uh told to her through Saint Michael the Archangel and the two virgin martyrs to go find the Dauphine to lead a military force to take Orléans and then take further towns leading up to Rem to crown the Dauphine as king of France. It's amazing. It's amazing. Praise God. So, uh, you know, after this, everyone was jubilant, celebrations, having a good time, drinking that French wine. And there were many songs that were sung for Jones' praises after this. And uh, there was a particular praise that was given by Alain Chartier, who was the secretary of King Charles VII, and he wrote that in comparing her to other great military leaders like Alexander, Hannibal, Caesar, he concluded, "'Here is she who seems not to come from anywhere on earth,' And who seems to be sent from heaven to sustain with her neck and shoulders a fallen France. She raised the king out of the vast abyss onto the harbor and shore by laboring in storms and tempests. And she lifted the spirits of the French to a greater hope. By restraining the ferocity of the English, she excited the bravery of the French. She prohibited the ruin of France and she extinguished the fires of France. O singular virgin, worthy of all glory, worthy of all praise, worthy of divine honors, you are the honor of the rain, you are the light of the lily, you are the beauty, the glory, not only of France, but of all Christendom. Now, this is the high point of Joan's military successes, and after this point, it starts to go downhill, and there are some shenanigans that happen. So, after the crowning of Charles, Joan, she urged a quick move to take Paris before the English enforced it. But Charles listed to his other advisors who, side note, did not like Joan. They were jealous of her. And they advised Charles to offer a truce to Duke Philip of, of Burgundy. And, you know, he sent out this truce, but... Duke Philip was being a uh, was being a conniving son of a gun, and so after the uh, after Duke Duke Philip didn't reciprocate, Charles allowed Joan to take a small force to Paris. And at Saint Denis, which was an outskirt town, during an assault, we have a particular memorable moment where quote the maid took her standard in hand and with the first troops, entered the ditches toward the swine market. The assault was hard and long, and it was wondrous to hear the noise and the explosion of the cannons and the culverins that those inside the city fired against those outside, in all manner of blows in such great abundance that they were beyond being counted. The assault lasted from about the hour of midday until about the hour of nightfall. After the sun had set, the maid was hit by a crossbow bolt in her thigh. After being hit, she insisted even more strenuously that everyone should approach the walls so that the place would be taken. But because it was night and she was wounded, the men-at-arms were wary from the day-long assaults. The lord of Gukor and others came to the maid and against her will carried her out of the ditch and so the assault ended. So, after the failed assaults, the paris uh, assault um was disbanded and was called off so Charles disbanded the army on september twenty first and he took Joan with him to the castle at at Borges in the south, even though she wanted to keep on fighting now you know in this situation she was you know she she wasn't being given that option so she did her best to practice holiness, and uh, there's some memorable examples of this. Well, she was residing at the house of Marguerite La Toriolde, one of the Queen's ladies-in-waiting. She frequently went to Mass, received the sacraments, and invited her hostess to attend early morning prayers with her. Also, she was generous with her almsgiving and most willingly gave to the needy and the poor, saying that she had been sent for their consolation. Her reputation for holiness grew such that woman came from the house while Joan was staying there. They brought rosaries and other objects of piety so that she might touch them. This made her laugh and say to me, Touch them yourself. They will be as good from your touch as they would be from mine. Joan's humility, neither seeking the adulation of others nor claiming priestly powers of her own and her charity toward the poor and afflicted, Were signs of her genuine sanctity. Now, in October 1429, after King Charles realized that Duke Philip was uh, not going to set up a truce or or set up a a true peace, he sent Joan with a very intentionally small force, which the advisor Tremol uh, had uh, advised him to do, to retake towns near Paris. And they did take Saint-Pierre, but they failed at La Charte and they were pushed back to Jargot. So, you know, she was given a force of men that wasn't, wasn't what she needed to properly take back the towns around Paris. But this was done because they were afraid that she would get too big for her boots, and, and she might be a threat. So they, of course, messed around with that. Uh, but she did her best. And uh, there's a note here about her, her disciplining her troops. So, quote, But Joan absolutely forbade any violence, as Reginald Thierry later said. When the town of Saint-Pierre-les-Mothiers was captured by assault, where she was, the soldiers wished to do violence to the church and to steal the holy relics and other goods stored there. But Joan strongly prohibited this and defended the place. Nor did she ever allow anything to be stolen, so she was not about to let her soldiers just go on a rampage, rape, pillage, steal. She was, she was, uh, she was not going to let that happen. So, past uh, forwarding, she spent the winter into spring getting troops and supplies for another push, and she was joined by some pretty cool guys. Uh, there was, uh, let's see, a small band of 150 men she set out for Melun. Other captains of war with their men-at-arms joined her. One of them was Bartolomeo Barretta from Piedmont, with 200 soldiers, Louis de Bourbon and Kennedy, the Scottish captain with his small contingent, and several others expanded the French forces. So they took Melun, but... Uh, At this time, she was hearing some troubling words from her voices, uh, foreshadowing her capture. And back to the book, um, there was a uh, Burgundian garrison at Melun that was expelled, and it was captured on June the 24th, which was the Feast of St. John the Baptist, and you know, the, the voices that she was hearing were, were warning her that she would be captured by the English and their allies. And this terrified her, and so she asked for a quick death rather than lose her freedom at enemy hands. And I do not blame her for what ends up happening later on. Uh, another amazing incident occurred at Lagny. Several women asked Joan to pray for a stillborn child dead for three days. The mother had carried the baby into the Abbey Church of Saint-Pierre and placed the dead, blackened body in front of an image of the Virgin Mother Mary in hope that the baby would revive long enough for baptism. Joan went with them into the church, joined the mother, prayed, and finally life appeared in the child, which yawned three times and was then baptized. Then it died and was buried in consecrated ground. So... That's an amazing story and one of the evidence to point towards her, her canonization and efforts for that. Now, fast-forwarding. In early May, English forces had besieged the town of Compiègne, and Joan rushed to defend it. And unfortunately, it was at this town that she was captured during a surprise attack outside the city gate as she led a rear-guard action to allow the French troops to escape back into the city. So, uh, just a a quote from the book, getting into that detail. The governor of Compiègne, Bertrand de Flavie, half-brother of Archbishop de Chartres, ordered the raising of the inner bridge to close the main gate, both to its enemies and to its liberator. Surrounded by her enemies, but still trying to fight free, Joan was yanked from her horse by an archer under Lionel, the Bastard of Vendôme, from Luxembourg. And at about 6 o'clock in the evening, on May 23rd, 1430, Joan surrendered herself to the knight Lionel Vendôme. All right. And a last quote from the book, at least for today. The author is reflecting on the events so far, and he notes that, This was the same woman who a little while before cried out that even if the English were to flee as far as the clouds, she would catch up with them. The picture is one of eternal beauty. When one day there is an end to killing and the hour of the final judgment approaches, the true direction of the main highway of Western history will be made clear. A maid, kneeling at the roadside, while around her echo the whinny of horses and the shrieks of the murdered. She presses the head of an unknown, dying enemy to her breast and prays for her soul. All right, so we are going to put a pause on that. We are about halfway through this book by, once again, For God and Country, The Heroic Life and Martyrdom of St. Joan of Arc by Father Michael Cerrone. It's a good one. There's so much more detail in here that I haven't covered, so get the book. And there's going to be a part two, because her trial and her eventual martyrdom is a is a whole story in, in itself, so I don't want to go on too long here today. But, whew, yeah, just uh, taking a pause here on St. Joan of Arc and what we've covered so far and what we've learned. So, St. Joan of Arc, she is the patron saint of soldiers in France, not surprisingly, and Uh, Some of the lessons I think we can take away, at least for what we covered today, is um, chastity, purity, absolute loyalty to Christ, love and reverence for the Lord. So I think all of those things she absolutely exemplified. She was a shining example of that. And I think it's so easy, especially for the chastity and purity, which is so needed nowadays. I think it's so easy to just fall into crude things, but it is, it is, it is worthwhile to pursue that purity and that chastity. So there is a quote from uh, Mark Twain's book. So Mark Twain, he wrote a huge book on St. Joan of Arc. And it was, he said, it was his finest work. He was captivated by her. And there's a quote uh, from the book which goes The common eye sees only the outside of things and judges by that. But the seeing eye pierces through and reads the heart and the soul, finding their capacities which the outside didn't indicate or promise, and which the other kind of eye couldn't detect. And I think Joan of Arc definitely had this seeing eye as she could read any man. She could uh, boldly uh, identify what was going on in a situation. And there's also a book by Hilaire Belloc, another a, a famous Catholic philosopher. And uh, you can read his stuff. I think it's on, if you go to archive.org, there's a copy of it that you can read for free. Um, But uh, there is uh, some notable things, uh, some notable artwork that I found while looking into St. Joan of Arc. There is a beautiful portrayal of her by Eugene Thurion, uh, and it's just titled Jean d'Arc. And uh, yeah, so what a amazing story so far and we'll continue that in part two but jumping into uh the tobacco side of the house so i'm going to follow up with another quote from mark twain uh although it's not confirmed that he said this as as there's many quotes that are attributed to him and uh this one is called uh giving up smoking so it goes like this giving up smoking is the easiest thing in the world i know because i've done it thousands of times I guess that's what he would have sounded like, but I think that's that's great. It's just Yeah, you know, try to give it up. I've done it before, just thousands of times. Can't say that I've I've kept it up, but you know, I've done it hundreds of thousands of times. Well, anyways, getting to the the fine tobacco for this week. So I think a a type of tobacco blend that Joan would have smoked if she had access to it would have been The tobacco blend of Parique. So, what is Parique? So, this is a type of tobacco blend that originates from Saint James Parish in Louisiana. It has a strong, powerful. has a fruity aroma, and what's neat, another another note about this. Why I chose it is that uh, when the Acadians who were French Canadians that had come down into Louisiana after the fall of Quebec when the English had defeated the the French during the uh, Seven Years' War, French and Indian War. They had migrated down to the Louisiana area where it was still held by the French. So around 1776, there were Choctaw and Chickasaw tribes who were cultivating different types of tobacco and there was a French farmer who kind of was inspired by that. And he developed through different techniques this special kind of tobacco called Parique, And it's, it has a very intense flavor. And it's rarely just smoked by itself because it's so intense. So you have to combine it with other blends of tobacco. So I think Joan would smoke this because Joan... Was intense. She was. She was not chill. <laughs> she was a uh, an intense woman, and uh, I think that goes along with her personality of being frank, uh, being bold, being honest, and and also courageous. Now, to uh, to help you with finding a good pipe tobacco of this kind, I recommend Orlick Golden Flake and once again some some catholic imagery here the logo for Orlick Golden Flake has a a nun catholic nun on it and then there's also two friends redwood so you can get that at pipesandcigars.com and those should be good smokes for parique well once again this is uh this has been a great podcast and i think uh I, I'm, I'm looking forward to the next episode on Joan of Arc, getting into her trial and martyrdom, and uh, once again, if you have any feedback, I'd love to hear it. So leave a comment on SmokingWithTheSaints.com, or you can email SmokeWithSaints at gmail.com, and just a final shout out to once again. Pints with Aquinas, for the inspiration to start this podcast. And once again, my friend Thaddeus Hughes' podcast, Machina Ex Deo. Definitely check that out. And uh, just a couple other things. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Join the um, Spoken with the Saints newsletter once you're on there. And of course, thank you for listening. Can't do this without you. Please share the show with somebody that you love. And uh, check out the show notes for some interesting stuff. So until then, shalom, y'all. Have a good one. Warning, tobacco may have been burnt in the making of this episode.